0: This morning, we continue in our Theological Vitality series with a message on the new temple. And our scripture comes from Ezekiel 43, verses 1 to 12. I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. The scripture will be on the screen behind me, and I'm going to invite you to read together with me in one voice from Ezekiel 43, verses 1 to 12. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. And his voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. And the vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the Kabar River. And I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And while the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. And he said, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The people of Israel will never again defile my holy name. Neither they nor their kings by their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings at their death. And when they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them, They defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings, and I will live among them forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection, and if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits and entrances, its whole design, and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. This is the law of the temple. All the surrounding area on top of the mountain will be most holy. Such is the law of the temple. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning from Ezekiel chapter 43. And once again, we come before you asking your Holy Spirit to teach us. To reveal the text to us that we may understand and comprehend the deep things that are in this text, Lord. We confess in our humanity, it is difficult for us to understand. But if you come and teach us, Lord, we will understand. And then we will obey. We will hear the word of the Lord and apply it to our lives, God. So today, we're praying that we'd understand who you are. That we'd understand your presence, your glory, your holiness, your perfection. Help us to comprehend these great attributes. And then, Lord, as a result of encountering those things, help us to be changed. Help us to work on ourselves from the inside out that we might bring you glory and praise through our lives. So, Father, I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to preach the word to your people. May you empower me by your spirit for the task. I need the anointing of God on my life, God, in order to preach. They have not come to hear these vain words. They have come to hear a word from the Lord. And, God, we're hungry and desirous of that, most importantly, today. Feed us, I pray. Quench our thirst today. Give us desire for your heart. And so, Lord, I ask for your help today. Give me the conviction, the boldness to preach. We ask for your blessing together. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The temple was the sacred structure of Israel's faith. It was the site of annual pilgrimage. For all those living around Israel, they would come and make journey and they would ascend to the hill of the Lord to worship in that place. And this is where priests and Levites, they carried out their duties before the Lord on behalf of the people. You know, the earthly temples were based upon a heavenly model. We find this in Hebrews 8 verse 5, where the author gives us great insight. He says, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This means that Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple and Ezekiel's temple and later what would be Zerubbabel's temple, they were all iterations of God's temple. And what is interesting is that their measurements for each temple, though given by God directly to the builders, it changed from building to building. The largest of the temples is actually listed here in Ezekiel's temple. Now, the temple was the location of God's tangible presence among his people. Christopher J.H. Wright, he explains this. He says, the temple was not primarily a place of human worship, though, of course, it was that, but the place of divine presence where God, he caused his name to dwell. The temple was meant to be inhabited, not to be vacated. Another way to say this is that the temple was the place where God's feet rested. It is as if we need to have a grandiose picture of who God is. And if he's seated in heaven, his feet drape into the earth and rest in the temple of the Lord. In Isaiah 66 verse 1, it is God who said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Wow, what a great God. What a big God. And sadly, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BCE. And this signified the very absence of God's presence from his people. And though the physical structure was no longer standing, God gave Ezekiel a vision of a temple not yet built to give the people assurance of the return of his presence. Maybe you're here today and you feel like God has abandoned you. The sin in your life has separated you from him and here is Ezekiel reminding us that God will not abandon his people forever. This is what God gave pe- this is what God's people this is what gave God's people hope, sorry. And he continues to give us hope now today. We have hope in our hearts. So this morning, I want to share about the return of three attributes of God in the vision of Ezekiel 43 verses 1 to 12 that God also wants to restore to us today as a way to assure us of his presence. The first point this morning, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, is in the text we see God's glory. God's glory. This is in verses 1 to 5 in particular. It says, Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. And his voice was like the roar of rushing waters. Wow. And the land was radiant with what? His glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And like the visions I had seen by the Kabar River. And I fell face down. And the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. And then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. We see the glory of the Lord moving and working in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel 10, and Ezekiel 34. And it's important for us to trace the movement of the glory of God. Back in Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 18 to 19 we see the departure of God's glory. The scripture says, Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. And while I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. And they stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory departed out of the temple, and the glory lifted up from the earth, and then the glory of the Lord came to a stop. We find that in the next chapter, Ezekiel eleven twenty three, 23, where it says, The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The city of Jerusalem, if you don't know, if you have not been there, is surrounded by seven hills or mountain peaks. And the one to the east of Jerusalem would be the Mount of Olives. And if we fast forward in scripture, we know that this is exactly where Jesus spent a lot of his time praying to the Father. And you might say, well, how do you know that? Well, Luke twenty-two thirty-nine 39 tells us that Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. This was the place where he communed with God. This is the place where they spoke and he received the, the will of the Father and he received strength from on high. And this is where God's presence stayed until Ezekiel 34. It stayed on top of Mount Olives. Almost 20 years later, Ezekiel received a new vision. And in verse 2, Ezekiel described what he saw. He said, I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. And this gave Ezekiel such great consolation in his heart that all that was lost would return in God's perfect timing. This also has implications for us today too. The apostle John in John chapter one, verse 14, he said, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. This is John saying, I have seen his glory with my own two eyes. When Jesus was on earth, all who saw him, they saw his glory And then since his ascension into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God, we are living with this absence of God's glory. But we also live with great expectation that his glory will come again. You know, whenever the glory of the Lord appeared to Ezekiel, all he could do is one thing. Every time the glory of the Lord appears, he does the same thing over and over. All he could do was fall face down. This is the appropriate human response to the divine presence. That it is the posture of one who acknowledges his or her unworthiness before God. And I really feel and believe today that we are losing the kind of reverence for God's presence. We need to get back to being a revering people who respect and stand in awe of our God. And perhaps we come too casually into God's presence. Maybe you occasionally kneel to pray. Let me just even ask you, when was the last time you kneeled to pray? I was so encouraged to see people come this morning in both services and kneel before the Lord and pray. When was the last time you laid prostrate on the floor because of the glory of the Lord? It's probably been a long time. You know, this happens for two reasons. First, the glory of the Lord is radiant. It is radiant. It is like looking directly Into the sun. I used to do this when I was a kid. Really bad decision. Because you look into the sun, it's so bright and captivating. And and, and so, it's such a source of power. And you look up and you look in the sun and slowly you get all these floaters in your eyes. And you start to squint and you can't do it anymore. Our eyes cannot fully behold such brilliance. Second, the glory of the Lord, it fills the space. It is like air occupying every nook and cranny of a room. It is impossible to be unaffected by the atmosphere of God's glory around us. That if God's glory is in a place and you walk into it, you are encompassed by the glory of God. And all you can do is what? Fall face forward, face down. Now, we may be longing for the glory of the Lord. I know we often would like to pray the prayer of Moses and say, Lord, show me your glory. It's a really great prayer in scripture, but I I, I doubt we fully understand what God's glory will require of us. It will mean stopping whatever you're doing. It will mean falling face down on the floor and revering God for a long time. You know, in, in Pentecostal circles, we used to say, well, you know, like, what's your, what's your connection with God? How are you doing? Have you been spending carpet time? You remember carpet time? It really means, have you been with the Lord? Have you been in his glory? Have you spent time in his presence? And can I just encourage you today to do that carpet time with God? <laughs> to, to kneel before your maker that recognizes that he's your maker. And to lay on the floor recognizing that the glory of the Lord is here in a place. It could be in your house, it could be in this church, but that is an appropriate biblical response to the glory of God. Secondly, today is God's holiness. We see this in verses six to nine. Let me refresh the scripture for you. That while the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. And he said, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet, and this is where I will live among the Israelites forever, and the people of Israel will never again defile my holy name. Neither they nor their kings by their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings at their death, and when they place their... Place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost. With only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and their funeral offerings for their kings and I will live among them forever. You know that God doesn't change, Right? He's the same yesterday, today, forever. It's one of the beautiful aspects of God's character and personality is that he does not change. It's an attribute of God, unchanging. But Israel needed to change. We need to change. And God is holy, and it's time for his people to become holy again. I know we don't talk about holiness a whole lot from uh, from church platforms today because it seems like a little uncool. But holiness is required of us. Daniel I. Block, he states it this way, that the one who resides in this holy temple on this holy mountain demands a holy reputation. And he will not tolerate an unholy people, you and me, representing him before the nations. He will not allow his name to be mocked. He will not allow his holiness to become a byword among the people. And so what had God's people done in the past? Scripture tells us that they had desecrated the sacred space of the temple of the Lord. Old Testament commentators, they point to a common culprit behind all of this evil. And it is a man named Manasseh. Manasseh was a former king of Judah, and he was responsible for significant decay, moral decay, spiritual decay in the land. And in 2 Kings 21 verses 3 to 7, we find a summary statement about his reign. And listen to what happened during his time of leadership. He rebuilt the high places his father, Hezekiah, had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. And he built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And in the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts, and he sacrificed his own son in the fire. Wow! He practiced divination. He sought omens. He consulted mediums and spiritists. And he did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. And he took the carved Asherah pole he had made and he put it in the temple of the Lord. In which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. Forever. Manasseh reversed what was good and repeated what was evil. And he was unlike his father, King Hezekiah, who was really the best example. And he was like King Ahab, who was the worst example. And we know from 2 Kings and we know from 2 Chronicles that most of the kings were buried in Jerusalem, just outside the city walls, among the tombs of their ancestors. We even know from Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 15 to 26... That the royal tombs were located specifically between two gates, between the fountain gate and the water gate. And these tombs would be very far away from the temple premises. However, there were two kings of Judah who had tombs somewhere else. And those are the tombs of Manasseh and Ammon. Now, according to 2 Kings 21, 18 and 21, 26, they were buried in the palace garden called the Garden of Uzzah. And these tombs were right next to the temple. Knowing the sinful track record of Manasseh and Ammon, who did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Here is my hypothesis, my friends. My hypothesis is that the inhabitants of Jerusalem Revere the tombs of these wicked leaders with prostitution and funeral offerings. That they were revering the dead kings that have passed. That this was a royal cult. And it was bringing dishonor to God. So it is by these detestable practices that the people had defiled God's holy name. And when the unholy threshold and doorpost touched the holy threshold and doorposts, the temple of God became unholy. And God's holy name, my friends, cannot reside in an unholy place. So God departed from it, and he permitted for it to be destroyed. And Ezekiel 43 was suddenly good news for the people who had experienced and witnessed the destruction of Solomon's temple. And here is God. God told Ezekiel to tell the people that he would inhabit a temple with his holy name again. And the only prerequisite was that they become holy as God is holy. Holiness matters to God. And so should holy ma- holiness matter to us. I know it's an unpopular topic these days. Nobody wants to talk about holiness. That's my private life. I'll deal with that. I won't share that with anybody. But holiness matters to God, so it should matter to us. Let me remind you today of the words found in Hebrews twelve fourteen: that it is without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Those are scary words. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Do you want to see the Lord? I want to see the Lord. You want to see the Lord. Some of us are afraid what will happen when we see the Lord. (laughs) But doing so requires a personal holiness. I just want to encourage you today to develop holiness in your life, to actually care about that area of your life, whether it be your purity or it be just being set apart unto God and keeping yourself away from worldliness from the carnal nature, the sinful flesh. Just separate and remove yourself from those things and dedicate your life completely to God in holiness. And thirdly, today, we see in the text God's perfection. In verses 10 and 11, we read, Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins and let them consider its perfection. Perfection. And if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits and entrances, its whole design, and all its regulations and laws. And write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. During the construction of the tabernacle in the first temple, God was very precise about measurements. I've always noticed in the scripture, God is very particular about numbers. He gets numbers. He's a numbers God. And we see in Exodus 35 to 40, his focus on numbers when the tabernacle was built. We see this in 1 Chronicles 28 to 2 Chronicles 6, when Solomon's temple was built, that there are precise measurements, that there are important details that God gives to his people when constructing a temple for him. And we see something similar here in Ezekiel 40 to 42 when Ezekiel received a vision of a new temple. Because there is a man guiding Ezekiel's tour of the temple and he had a measuring rod in his hand and he measured out all the dimensions of every room of sacred space. But like David, though Ezekiel was given the measurements, he was not the one to build it. And like Solomon, it was Zerubbabel who would later come and build the second temple after returning from exile in, a, in Ezra chapter one to six. You know the perfection of this visionary temple? Why is it so perfect? What does that tell us? It's there to remind the people of God's perfection. That we serve a perfect God with no moral deficiency in him. Quoting Leviticus 19.2, it was Jesus who said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 verses 48, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Now you and I know we can't be perfect. I wish I could be perfect. It'd be nice if we could be perfect, but we're not perfect. We we have to uh, fight the life of sin and repel that at all efforts. But if God is perfect, then we must be perfected. And I I think that is the essence of what God is saying. He wants to perfect us. Not that we'd be perfect, but we'd be perfected. According to Job 36 verse 4 and Job 37 verse 14, God has perfect knowledge. He really does. Perfect knowledge. And even though these are the words of a man named Elihu, one of Job's friends who wasn't really a great friend, he was not wrong in what he said about God. God has perfect knowledge. The psalmist reminds us in many verses that God's ways and God's instructions are perfect. Nothing that God does is imperfect. Get that in your heart and your spirit. Everything that God does is perfect. The perfection of this visionary temple was also meant to remind the people of their imperfection. You know, what is the purpose of shame here? The people of Jerusalem were not to feel joy about the news of God's return, but shame that he had even left in the first place. Now, some of you say, you know, shame is not a good thing. I don't want shame in my life. Now, it's not good to live in constant perpetual shame, but shame has a purpose and a function in our lives. And that is why it's emotion we can feel. God-given emotion for us to feel, because shame teaches us something about ourselves. The feeling of shame does have a spiritual purpose in our lives. It is not something we should ignore. It's not something we should suppress. It is meant to caution us to never return to the place of spiritual depravity again. Don't go back to that place. And the people needed to be reminded that indeed it was their sinful behavior that resulted in God's absence. God did not abandon them. They abandoned God. God never abandons us, my friends. It is we who abandon God. And Israel and Judah had become like the nations around them. And Pastor Kim talked about the nation of Tyre. And Pastor Joshua talked about Gog and Magog. All these nations and Israel and Judah was no better. And all the laments and all the prophecies were warnings that were not heeded by God's people. And nevertheless, the vision of the perfect temple gives hope it gives us hope that there is a future and you need that hope today that we're not just stuck in this predicament but we have hope for the future to come that the temple would be the venue for God to perfect his people That's what God did in the temple. He dealt with the sin issue of the Israelites and it's in the temple. That's the venue for God to perfect his people. God is interested in perfecting imperfect people like you and like me. Thank God. As the worship team returns to the platform this morning, as we come to a close today, we move from the Old Testament into the New Testament And some things seem to change about how God manifested his presence. Let me remind you today that this is not a temple. It's just a building. Yes, we call it a church and we think it's an important place. It's a gathering place for us. It's an assembly hall in many ways for us. But this is just a building. We can meet in any place, in any place, all over the city, and we can still meet with God. There's nothing technically special about this place. It is not a temple like an Old Testament temple. Stephen in Acts 7.48, he tells us this, that the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. The Apostle Paul reiterated this when speaking to the Athenians. In Acts 17.24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. What is Stephen, what is Paul trying to say to us today? We no longer have a temple because we are a temple. You have to see yourself that way. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're a temple in which God resides and God dwells in human hearts, not in buildings of stone. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he rhetorically asked this question. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Wow. Now think about this for a moment. It's one thing to understand and comprehend that the God of the universe, the God of heaven and earth lives in this geographical location in this beautifully adorned temple full of gold and silver and all sorts of beautiful artifacts and a beautiful altar and a veil and all these wonderful things. I can get that. I can get behind that. That makes sense to me. But the God of the universe, of heaven and earth, living inside of me, that's hard for me to comprehend. Friends, the greatness of God is within you. The presence of Almighty Lord is abiding with you. Let that like get into your heart, and into your spirit today. For some of you, that's like a mind-blowing moment. Aha moment. God is in me. Let's not take that lightly because it has ramifications. If God is in us and God is holy, then I can't be unholy. I need to be holy because he wants to dwell a holy place, not an unholy place. If God is perfect and I'm imperfect, I need to allow a perfect God to perfect my imperfection. If God is holy, uh, sorry, if God is glorious, and he is full of glory, then I need to spend a lot more time on my face in reverence of who he is, instead of doing my own thing. The truth is so heavy for us today that we have to accept it and allow it to change us. Is your body, is my body, a holy place for his holy name. Maybe you're here today and you feel like the people of Jerusalem, you have done some really detestable things in your lifetime. And maybe you're here today and you have been feeling empty for such a long time. I want you to know that today you can simply make a decision for God that will transform you from an unholy person to a holy person. This is what he loves doing from a physical temple to a human temple, which God can inhabit and in which he will live, not just for a little while and then vacate, not just for a little while and then vacate again, forever. God wants to live within you forever. Do we really believe what we believe we believe? I believe this to be true. This is the word of God for you today. Would you grow in holiness? Would you allow the perfect one to perfect you? All the imperfections, yes, we come with our baggage, but he's willing to perfect you. And would you allow yourself to get in the presence of the Lord and his glory and stand in awe and in reverence of him, even face down? I think that's probably the most most powerful expression we have as human beings in the presence of the Lord is to be face down before him, prostrate on the floor before him, Recognizing he's glorious, he's holy, and he's perfect. I think knowing that he's inside of us can change everything. Let's pray.